0: Hello my friends. Today we're talking to Mark, CTO of Zero, and we discuss what it's been like scaling a fast-growing tech company in New Zealand, how Zero differentiates itself with its culture to attract top talent, and why it's imperative to keep tight feedback loops with your customers, developers, and leadership. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Modern CTO Podcast.
1: I started um, at university, actually. I um, studied science, did an honours degree and then a PhD in theoretical chemistry. So it's kind of understanding the world. Um, It was a lot to do with a certain complex system of polymers and how they grow. And I, I really loved the kind of depth you can get to to understanding, uh, you know, a really complex system like that, and how it w- works, and how it f- fits together, and you know, sort of delving into understanding it more. So I did those degrees um, in New Zealand, and then it's a very natural thing, and actually in science, but also particularly for New Zealanders to go and to live somewhere else. So I, I left and I moved, and I um, travelled to Eindhoven in the in the Netherlands, which is. Pretty much as far away from from New Zealand as you can get, and I, I did a postdoc there, so co-sponsored piece of work between a university, and um, and and a, and a company. So I did that for a year, and I got to the point where I sort of felt like a bit of a crossroads. So I've been doing all the science, and you know, for a long time, and I was looking ahead at the you know the rest of my career and thinking, um, do I want to stay? you know, kind of working at a university and um, the life that comes from that. And I decided that I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to do something a bit different, maybe a bit more, a bit more business oriented, but more, but more dynamic. So I, um, this was kind of before all the great online courses that are around in the world today. So I, I I taught myself um, Java, you know, um, during that time. And then I, I traveled with my wife and, moved over to London and I spent four or five years there uh, working for a whole bunch of companies and really immersing myself in lots of different types of technology companies and domains and problem spaces. And it's actually one of the most satisfying parts of my career. I remember working, I worked at a hedge fund for a while and you know, working on this really interesting kind of mathematically complex problem. And, you know, the feeling when you're writing code and you get in, um, in the morning, and you get immersed in the problem you're trying to solve, and before you know it's two o'clock. You, you started to get hungry, but you have that real sense of flow and kind of immersion. And so, and I, re, I really I love that. And so, I did that for um, for the time we were there, and then I, you know, reached the point with my wife that we decided we had to decide between staying in the UK or coming back uh, to New Zealand and starting a family. So, I moved back to back to New Zealand. Um, so that's that's really the start of my started my career and so really hasn't looked back. I think it's like many careers, it's a bit of serendipity in the way it plays out. You know, you kinda study something and then you are in a situation and you presented with an opportunity and things kind of evolve from there. Like like the way you talked about your career. It's like it's not like it's a plan you draw up when you're 18 and you follow it. There's more just you, you meet these people and this opportunity happens and this person goes away or something and and things go from there. My my path in my career is a bit like that as well.
0: That's really cool. So you spent a lot of time in academia. Why did you decide you wanted to enter like the business world?
1: That's something I think about it a bit. So I think academia would have been great and getting lost in a uh, narrow problem space and understanding it really and really depth is something that I enjoy. But I felt like I wanted a bit more diversity and change and the opportunity to experience lots of different spaces and problems. Rather than going deep in one area, I, I like I, by nature, I think I enjoy the change that comes from working in different spaces and different domains. And so it seemed to me that working in business and technology would give me a sort of more dynamic kind of work environment with lots of different problems and spaces and change. So, yeah, my job is very busy now. Sometimes I I, uh, I look back, look at some of my friends who, you know, professors and, um, and stuff, and and, I, and I, I, I'm I jealous of the opportunity they I have to kind of have all that space to think because, you know, that's a, that's a real luxury when you end up running a, a big team, but it was that choice of kind of um, change and, you know, dynamic dynamism that I really wanted rather than just, the, you know, focusing on a narrow space, if that
0: makes sense. So uh, you're at zero now. Uh, am I saying that correctly?
1: Zero. Um, yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah. Cool. So how did you meet the team and get involved there?
1: Yeah. No. So, so zero is um, zeros uh an accounting software as a service um, platform. It was founded in in Wellington, where where I'm from. It's um, it's pretty unique in New Zealand. It's probably the the um, the only technology multinational that started has started from New Zealand. And so it started in Wellington. Wellington's a really quite a small city. It's like 400,000 people. And so, um, you know, I was working uh, for Microsoft in New Zealand and I um, I did some work, you know, 4-0, um, doing some consulting early on. But this, the nature of that um, that city is there's lots of connections between everyone because it's quite small. So I, I had a bunch of friends there. And I was just like, wow, this is really exciting Um, rapidly growing company uh, in a really interesting domain with technology problems that are kind of fascinating which you kind of um, you you only I think get in really big tech hubs around the world Um, the problems of kind of scale and growth so it's opportunity to live in New Zealand which I love and work for this company that was growing quickly facing kind of technology and growth challenges that are really the kind that the really big tech companies face. So it's the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's uh, something on the podcast that we recorded yesterday. Joel was talking about how he lives in um, a pretty rural area of Tennessee, in the United States, um, and they have new brand spanking new internet out there because they just didn't have any internet infrastructure until, like, two years ago. They just got it. So they have the latest fiber. He has like gigabit up and down. And he was talking about how it's just really cool that now you can, you know, live anywhere and run a tech company. And there's not as much like brain drain from these like smaller areas. Like people are able to stay where they love and bring value to their local communities, which is just like super cool. It's kind of sounds like that's where you're at.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I think to even um, even I think it's kind of um, with the pandemic and the changes there, it's kind of it's a, it kind of moved in the opposite direction of what it did in the past. Where people have, you know, I know we've experienced lots of New Zealanders coming back to New Zealand who have been working overseas and you know and you know for the Googles and Microsofts and Facebooks the well, world coming back because of the pandemic and realizing that they can have great careers with tech companies like Xero and and others around the world now. Um, based in, you know, places where there's a great quality of life, and and as you said, like great communities that you can become really connected with and contribute to. I think it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. So, what are some of the the biggest challenges that you're solving today? You you mentioned that that's one of the one of the fun parts of the job.
1: Yeah, uh, it's the best part. Yeah. So, Zeros are. Um, I've been been at Zero for about nine years now. So it's been growing really quickly. It's we've got about two point seven million. Subscribers spread around the world. Staff, staffs around, you know, um, getting close to four thousand people. And a lot of the um, challenges I work on are really to do with balancing out two things, which I think are really core to a CTO role. One is there's always this pressure to ship valuable things for your customers more quickly. Like um, these product tech companies are all about meeting customer needs in a really beautiful and creative way that's definitely our philosophy so you have to invest a lot of time in enabling and hiring and growing your capacity to to live a great product to the customers at the same time you need to um you need to continue to earn that customer trust especially in domain like um, accounting when you're dealing with financial data so we need to make sure that the site is really stable that it's secure that we honor the commitments we make to our customers about how we use their data. So there's this, this force, two forces, right? You need to accelerate and drive change and go quickly, but at the same time, you need to manage trust and um, stability and security. That's kind of the intrinsic kind of balance. What makes it interesting, I think, is it's not a static problem, like because the growth means that the number of engineers that are working on that or the number of customers and number of locations is changing all the time. So it means... That the set of solutions you develop to solve that problem and get that balance right when you have a million customers is really different from when you have three million. So you need to challenge yourself to be kind of skating to where the puck is or thinking ahead to make sure that you um, really evolve your ways of thinking and planning and hiring and leading and all those things to adapt to you know to the environment one example of that is we used to when we're all in one location in Wellington, we used to um, do a lot of kind of in-person um, sharing and communication sessions and you know you can probably walk around the office and connect with everyone Um now with we have engineering teams you know in about five or six countries you know 10 locations around the world and staying present with them which is really important as a, as a leader you, you, you clearly can't connect with them in person and that's kind of accelerated by the pandemic. So I kind of adopted this mechanism of writing a, a blog or an email every week to just just to try and share what I'm thinking about, uh, to connect with all those things, to try and make sure that you create some connection and presence. But I use that as an example of how you kind of have to really evolve the way you think and lead as things change. And I mean, the interesting thing about that is it requires a lot of feedback to know how to change. And so I think being really curious and open-minded and connecting with lots of people and in the company is really key to that
0: so yeah obviously feedback is key to having like um really effective change and constant change how do you conquer the challenge of getting really good feedback at scale like because you're talking going from one to three million customers that's a lot of people to talk to
1: yeah Uh, it's I mean, it's a um, it's a hard problem, and I'm not sure. I'm not saying I think that we have solved that completely, but I think it's just, you know, it's it's feedback from the customers and also feedback from the staff as well, right? Uh, so I think it's a mindset thing about curiosity and seeking it out. Like we uh, we have a, um, some really good programs for connecting with our customers, like I do. Um, this thing that I love, where every month we have these detractor calls. So there's a set of customers who are really unhappy or who have left the platform. So we um some members of the leadership team we have an hour and we call up three of those customers and we talk to them about their experience with zero and why why they're unhappy or why they're um dissatisfied and um you know you have normally the customers are quiet uh, (laughs) they're quite surprised to have the cto calling them and um appreciative of it but but you learn so much about the end user experience and and the kind of wrinkles and the way things are working and the reality of the product and the choices you're making which is really fantastic i I really love that Um, and that makes it real and that's a good it's a good balance of all the quantitative data we get based on the feedback about the product's usage and NPS surveys and all the tools that we use to try and understand that customer base. I think that direct contact with customers and those stories, that's that's the most visceral kind of feedback you can get as well. And it's the same kind of um, applies to understanding the people, you know, the zeros. You know, there's the we use Office Vibe and those tools that kind of understand and get feedback. But there's no substitute from talking to people and hearing their experience. So I try and focus on spending some time on that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about the the product itself. I know um, SaaS solution for accounting, but what is like the problem that you solve that like you entered market and people are like, wow, we have to go to zero because this was unsolved previously?
1: Yeah. So we, our customers are, are really small businesses. So they're, they're plumbers and they're builders and they're small online businesses. And those um, those businesses, they are often started because the person has a passion for what they want to do. And they, they care about their business and growing and stuff. And they don't normally have a passion for bookkeeping or tax returns or you know <laughs> invoicing and stuff like that so they they want to focus on their job and how they can run it and grow their business and earn a living for their families so which we, we um, built some great cloud software that really streamlines that experience for them to do everything it comes to financially related to managing their business so that that ranges from invoicing so preparing sending out their invoices to their customers and getting paid that's a really key workflow. Managing the cash that they get in the business, a lot of these small businesses they they run their business based on how much cash they have, that's really key and so helping them understand uh, the payments receive, they're receiving and the payments they're making, that's that's really important and getting a view of how much money they have anytime and then the whole process of preparing and filing tax returns and that often happens in, in concept with their uh, accountant or bookkeeper and that's there's a couple of really things that I think are really um, really key to how well Zero is done. The first is the real focus on a beautiful experience. We know that our customers, they don't seek out the opportunity to do their bookkeeping, but we've spent a lot of effort on the design and user experience. So it's actually pleasurable as you can possibly make it. So they really they really um, enjoy it and stuff. And then also, many of the customers have a partnership with an accountant and a bookkeeper. And you know... You know, the proverbial end of year, have a box full of receipts and you give it over to the cloud software and the ability to collaborate allows them to work together on the same set of data in real time. So it cuts a whole lot of friction out of that process and allows the um, accountants to sort of transition into being business advisors or kind of coaches rather than administrators. So that that flow of the data and the administration are taking care of them. Taking care for them by, by the software, and they can focus on giving really good advice to these small businesses, helping them grow and and kind of run their business better. So that's that's the kind of power of zero. Yeah, there's a lot to go with that. Like, um, I think is it, there's a look, look, this was this um, change was driven by the cloud computing wave, um, but we we are really um, excited investing heavily in the way we can use that the data we have about our customers to change the experience because. You think about accounting as one of those domains where there's massive opportunity to improve customer experience with data and machine learning. So that's a, been a big bit for us and that's a really exciting journey.
0: Yeah, like you have the proverbial stack of papers coming in at the end of the year. Um, are, are you using like some machine learning at tools to understand what's even in the stack and then sort and make it useful?
1: One hundred percent. Yeah, that's um, there's three kind of categories of work in that space. One is the one you describe, where you know the small businesses, and you know I, I, I'm sure you're the same as me. You know, a lot of the way you buy and sell things is ends up in yeah you know, online, and then PDFs and email, and you know that's the kind of that's the paper of, of these days. So we, we've done a lot of work to help these customers ingest those PDF documents into zero, you know, with OCR and uh, machine learning technology. So all the friction of getting the data into the product is taken away. We also get lots of feeds of data from the, you know, banks and PayPals and Stripes of the world. So there's a lot of work on that ingestion. And then at the core of accounting, is matching, right? So it's matching, you know, the invoices you've set up um, and created with the payments that come in. So there's a lot of technology about reconciling those those two sides of the, um, the ledger. And so we put a lot of work into matching technology um, to reconcile, say, so something that comes in from your bank feed, a statement line, to the invoice that you sent out for, you know, the job you did or the work you did. So that's a fun machine learning problem as well um, that we've made some really good progress on. And then the third category of things is actually the most exciting, right? So once you get high-quality data in, in the software, and you've categorised it in terms of accounting. You can start to use it to do all sorts of things. Like um, we launched a product last year that does cash flow projections. Like I said, these businesses a lot of the way they run the businesses based on how much cash they have. We can look ahead and say, oh, this is what you. This is the money going out for payroll. Um, this is historically what you're what you've spent. This is what your cash flow looks like into the future and so how about we chase these invoices for you that are late so you can manage that dip in cash flow that comes so just which is to take away a lot of that worry you know that the small business have, so they can focus on their jobs it's almost like this idea of um, business on autopilot right where you set it up you set a set of objectives with your accountant, and the software helps you run it um, effectively to get to where you want to want to go and so there's just it's just um it's just so much opportunity in that space to do interesting things. And then, you know, this opportunities with benchmarking, you know, accountants using benchmark data about what other firms do, give advice to their customers. So you can see what someone's paying more for something or a bit similar business paying more tax or less tax, you know, the comparison is a really powerful tool we
0: can do as well. Yeah. That sounds incredible. We've been talking to several AI experts and like philosophers on the podcast recently because um, we've been kind of chasing the topic of, you know, what happens in 20 to 50 to 100 years when all, all the jobs get automated away. So there's been like a lot of conversation around ethics and AI and there's big examples on like getting loans based off of algorithms and whatnot. But I imagine in accounting, you're more following rules than like making decisions that can help or harm someone. Is there much of an ethic discussion around?
1: Oh, there's a, there's a big, um, ethics, um, element to it as well. Like we, um, we have been quite focused on that. So, um, you know, for example, we, we allow customers to, um, access services, which, means they can borrow money against their invoices. So we started by, we we made a series of um, public statements last year called our Responsible Data Use Commitments, which are statements we made um, publicly about the way we're going to consider the space and the way we're going to treat customer data and the way we're going to, the standards we're going to set ourselves for the way we deal with bias, which I thought was really important. And we have a, an external advisory group um, you know, accountants and small business owners and experts and stuff that are kind of advisors to us on the things we do in this space. It's an obligation for platforms like us to be really um, forward-thinking in the way they deal with it. Of course, I think the other other key part of preparing to deal with these problems as well is the diversity of the teams you have as well. So, you know, I think that's kind of my probably the one of the most powerful things ensuring that the team of engineers and product leaders and scientists they're working on this represent the diversity of your customers and kind of culture that flows through the company as well so it's something we are we are, it's it's amazing like you can I think you just as a stats platform or like like us you can look at other bigger companies and go oh that's that's the kind of problem they, they're they going to have to deal with because because the coverage in the news and the scale and stuff. But I think it's really important to go look at that and learn for your, about yourself and kind of be very curious about the spaces you can encounter those problems as well.
0: For sure. There's um, a, a saying I've heard a couple of times around cybersecurity, never let a good disaster go to waste. Yeah. Um, and I think that applies to um, disasters of uh, algorithms going rogue as well.
1: I'm, I'm hoping the world is changing a bit to put more value on trust and ethics with data and companies. You know, I think I think it is. I, I think that's a really good thing.
0: Yeah. I agree. Like everyone I talk to, observability is a big focus um, and making sure that like you actually know what's going on. They're not creating a black box. So yeah, I think that's a really good thing. And it sounds like you guys are doing... All the right stuff uh, in terms of the setting up the, the inputs for success for your algorithms. Uh, but I'm curious, how do you monitor the outputs to look out for a- any bias occurring? Where do you look for red flags is, is my question.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's a really challenging problem domain, right? Like the, um, the nature of these algorithms means interpreting and unpacking the logic behind the decision making is not and there's a there's a bunch of science evolving around explainability of these algorithms which I'm sure you've had people talk to you about and how and so that's something we're investing in understanding and building capability and monitoring as well um, I think it's not something that we have a bulletproof solution for yet but it's a focus and we um, we ask the teams to have plans in place to monitor and assess bias as, as part of the design of that algorithm before it's kind of reviewed and signed off. But yeah, I that that's I'm not sure we have a silver bullet solution. It's just something that we're aware of and planning investing our capacity growing capability for. It's definitely an emerging area of science as well. I think there's some some good steps being taken and involving kind of in explainability and you know the understanding of the sum of the logic behind the choices that are made by the other rooms yeah
0: so uh you mentioned earlier a huge tool for combating the bias in AI is having a strong, diverse team. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about hiring and, and like how you get there. Hiring, obviously, hot topic today with the Great Resignation and um, everyone is fighting for top talent. So what are what are some ways that you all are attracting top talent at zero?
1: Yeah. Um... It's been a really interesting time, the period over the pandemic in terms of um, terms of hiring and the stories about the Great Resignation and something that we've been, you know, we're paying a lot of attention to it before then, but really acutely so, and it's the, the loss of people out of the country. We had the kind of reverse um, effect um, initially that sort of had a brain gain effect where when the pandemic initially hit, uh, lots of New Zealanders and Australians, Australians who have been living other places around the world um, decided That it was wise to come back to this part of the world because of the uncertainty around COVID. So we had a really great spike in hiring. So I've been, you know, before I've been in zero for nine years. In that period, we've always we've never been able to hire um, our targets around, say, product designers. We've always had more heads than people. And so that initial period was the only period we managed to hire those targets in the history of the company, all the great people coming back. So that was that was really positive to start with. And then that we have had a period of really low attrition. I think zero is a kind of um, at the scale and stability that it's a good place to be um, during the uncertainty of, a, of the pandemic pandemic so we have historically low uh, attrition lots of people you know staying in in their jobs and and, um, we've actually done really well on our hiring as well through this period like um, we had the biggest hiring year in the history last year and we were able to hire all the people that we um, planned to which is fantastic so there was a really interesting kind of McKinsey study that talked about the great resignation and how this kind of there are companies that are really suffering from it, um, but there's also companies that have really benefited from the ability to hire as well. So we've done well so far, but it's something that's really changing almost day to day, The borders in New Zealand and Australia and around the world being um, closed has really driven up the amount of competition and therefore the amount of wage inflation. I think we historically hired about 19% of our hires were immigrants to New Zealand and Australia. And with the borders being Closed, of course, that's a section of the of people you can't hire. So that's driven competition in the markets as well. There's also some really interesting trends, I think, that have been accelerated by the pandemic. There's almost a, a globalization of the workforce. You know, you talked to, we talked before about working in remote locations, but we find each of the companies are now now sort of adjusted their mindset to say, oh, it's actually okay to have people working in New Zealand, even if you're a startup based in the silicon valley or new york or something like that so we we see um some stuff not like a massive number but to to, you know sort of american-based startups and stuff so it's more it's becoming more globalized and kind of um locations mattering less and that's creating some competition of its own
0: yeah so do you hire internationally or just mainly in new zealand
1: internationally so we have big uh development locations in new zealand so auckland wellington melbourne and then um Toronto and Denver are the key locations as well. And so we're growing a lot in the Northern Hemisphere because that's a lot where our customer growth is. So we're, we're growing that as well. But it's really, it's really competitive. Every, everywhere you go for tech talent, it's really competitive. We moved to, you know, naively, we moved to Denver to start with to say, oh, this might be a good location where there's less competition. But, of course, there's <laughs> not like this intense, intense competition everywhere. And um, I think, you know, you just... Yeah, we're lucky because I think we try to differentiate ourselves in terms of our culture and in terms of the flexibility we offer our staff. So trying to really adapt to what's changing in the world about how people want to work. So, you know, more opportunities around part-time work and remote work and all those kind of things that people really value, I think. And so that's been a positive in terms of our ability to hire. Also, um, just explaining the quality of the problems people can get to solve yeah, as well, which I think remuneration matters, of course, but people also want to work on things that mean something and work with people that, are, that they respect and have the flexibility to kind of fit their work into their life. And that's, I think it's really great how that's kind of evolved quite quickly and changed with the pandemic, and we've been trying to move with that as well.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Culture's been like at the top of mind recently, because as I mentioned to you at the beginning of the call, we we we're like launching this new line of business and hiring a bunch of people. We've actually had several evolutions, but we're moving from a company that makes a podcast to like a podcast production agency that has lots of producers and lots of salespeople. And now it's suddenly like I'm working with lots of people that are coworkers first, and then I get a like friendship with them second rather than just like the people we were doing the startup with. Um, and so just today, uh, our CEO had us all just put in items in the Slack, like, what do you want our values to be? What do you want our culture to be? We're like deciding these things right now. So I'm curious, what are some of your favorite parts about the culture at Zero?
1: It's a great question and it's really important to us. And it's really something we focus a lot on. Um, as we've grown right, and spread out around the world, because I mean, zero is interesting because lots of companies we're kind of the inverse, right? Of a lot of um, tech companies which start in the uh, US and then spread out around the world. We started in um, New Zealand, really small country, and then it's gone gone the other way. And what that means is you have to spread early, like you you can't build because the, the amount of talent and, and is smaller, so you have to kind of you end up being. Globalise and spread out more more quickly. So, thinking about the culture and how you maintain it in lots of different places has been a key part of what we have been thinking about. Oh, the culture of zero we have um, we have these um, single word values um, um, that are really deeply ingrained in the in the company, and so they're kind of markers of the culture and how we communicate. It. So, um, there's a couple that I really love. One is uh, human. So, this is I mean, this is just the, a really compelling strength of Xero as a company, is that um, there's a focus on um, the humanity of the people that work in the company and the customers. And so that kind of kindness and care um, really comes through our culture. I think it's part of the New Zealand culture is, is like that as well. And so that that's a real that's really deeply baked into how we work. So there's a lot of focus on the care we take for our staff and um, the way we treat each other and you know the, the way we care for our customers, that's, that's a key value. There's a, another value around uh, beautiful. This is, a, this, this is really about the focus on the quality of the experience of the customers of the software like it talked about you know this idea that we have these 3 million small businesses who are people that are passionate about what they do who want to focus on the craft and the cut care of what they do they don't, they, they want to spend less time on the software so our core proposition is making that a beautiful experience making it streamlined and easy so they can get back to the things they do uh, and it's a pretty powerful message in terms of the impact we have on our staff so that's that's deeply and then another one that I kind of, there's not that many, but another one that stands out to me is value around challenge. And I think that's, a, you know, you talk, we talked a little bit about feedback in, in companies and, you know, we had, um, we just had our company kick off of the year and we had Kim Scott who wrote Radical Candor Talk, which is awesome. But that's the kind of thing we think is really important because that frank and fl- free flow of information and perspectives about what's going on and the problems and how you lean into them it's just so important for companies, right? Because I think almost all the challenges and the and the, the problems and most of the solutions are known within the company. It's just people sharing them and people feeling safe enough to call them things out. So that's something we really want to lean into, and and is a is a kind of growing part of our culture. So yeah, I think it's one of zero's strengths actually.
0: You just mentioned like how a lot of times the solutions are in the heads of the people. That you already have there, and you just got to get the the best ideas out for everyone. Um, a piece of advice that I heard that I really liked around like getting the best ideas from everyone was when you're in like a creative session meeting or like a, a you're getting together with the intention of like ideation, not deciding that you have to have the answer at the end of the meeting and giving giving space for everyone's brains to work on it in the backgrounds after. And obviously that's good because like the longer you stew on something, you might come up with something even better. But what I thought was really cool about that and being intentional about doing that is it gives space for people that are just like a, more shy to speak up. And so that the loudest ideas aren't always the ones you go with.
1: I really like that as well. I think that's a, that's a lot about um, being a leader is creating that space for people to kind of acknowledging that um that as you said people work in different ways like um you know i think it's easy to kind of assume everyone's like you you know and i think the way you learn that with a team is is you know kind of creating a space for them to talk to you about what because i'm for, for example i'm a person i can quite quickly make decisions that's just the way my brain works but i have you know in my team i have some of the smartest people you, you can imagine um but that some of them like to take the time to contemplate things so um, and think things through. And that's that's really important. And so if you rock up in a meeting and go, here's the problem, what's the solution? Then you, get the, you don't get the best out of people where sharing, you know, it's as simple as sharing a pre-read or talking about the problem and then, as you said, not expecting the solution straight away. Coming back to it some other time is such a powerful way to unlock people. I think that kind of mindset and not that people are quite different about how they approaches things and think about them and you want to get the best out of a team, you have to kind of um, be intentional about
0: how you think about setting that up. So before we come up on time, I want to ask you a couple leadership questions, like we've been talking about leadership, but so your direct reports are, are, I assume they're also leaders, you're you're leading teams of teams at this point. Um, If you could design the perfect leadership training program for your direct reports, what would be the most important one to two concepts?
1: Yeah, two things I think are really important with um, leaders of teams. One, the first one is kind of patience. So it's a little bit related to what we were just talking about then is that, you know, there's a a lot to get done in companies like Xero um, quickly. And quite often I have found and that I talk to my teams about is that, you know, as a leader of, of a big team, you set some objectives and work together with them on the strategy. And then it's a lot about waiting long enough to let things play out. Because, you know, the more senior you get, I think the slower it feels for things to happen. But that it's just creating that space for teams to kind of go through the cycles of understanding and planning and working things through. So that kind of patience is is really uh, is really key. Most most important things you do when you lead people is that open and candid feedback i think um, that's a really big obligation as a leader to be able to kind of have the skill to give people the feedback about how they're going to help them develop like i think that kind of um that skill you develop over time and the bravery to do that is um is really important lots of people i think can flow through the careers of just letting taking an easy path on that but great talented people they want to get better and they want to learn and so developing the skills and the bravery to talk to your staff and give them feedback about how they can get better and develop is like, it's one of the biggest obligations of a leader, I think. And so I think making sure you learn how to do the coach and kind of um, give feedback to your teams and encourage them to do that with their teams is really critical. It's really important. Those would be two things.
0: That's something that I've particularly been thinking a lot about is, um, being very proactive with getting feedback several times in the episode, but being proactive about providing feedback. And if anything at all is like not the way it should be running, um, just, just telling those people rather than sitting there and stewing on it, like why they should, they should know how to do this. Like that's not helpful for anyone or the company. Um, and, and so that's someone, someone told me, as like some of the best advice I've heard is that no one should ever be surprised that they're being let go. Like you, you gotta give the feedback early and often that, Hey, this isn't working right. Um, and if it continues to not work right, this is what will happen. That's uh yeah, you're just hitting on something that, That has been like a big learning for me because I've just been kind of an individual contributor for a long time, like producing and making things. And I have complex processes in my head that I think everyone should know. And then um, when when you have to translate those to other people, you have to get really good at giving that feedback.
1: I mean, the best moments of my career being those moments where you've had someone you respect who's taken the time to think hard about the things that you can do to get better. And they've explained it to you with some skill and some examples It has a massive unpack. Sometimes it can unlock, you know, like a lot of frustration, like this, that perspective and thinking about and seeing things. It's a really, it's kind of, um, it's the nature of these jobs as well, that, you know, as CTO, I think I would spend, you know, 85% of my time on things relating to people that's the vast majority of my job is all the things that are key and core to leading people and leading big teams and communicating to them. That's the that's a core part of the job. I think it's it becomes less technology, more uh, leadership and engagement with peers and you know communication more than anything else.
0: So I got I got one more question for you. If you could go back to Mark at his uh, first time he's promoted to a leadership role in your career um what's one piece of advice you would give yourself then
1: yeah that's a great question i think there's different transitions you go through as you develop as a leader one one thing that i um i found how hard when i transitioned from a sort of a individual contributor to a leadership role is that i i love the experience of creating things and directly and the kind of hands-on work of building software. And so transitioning into a role where you get time to do that, less was a was a difficult transition because you, you live more and you experience uh, rewards more, more through the work of others. And so I would have um, encouraged myself to, to think about how I was going to get the satisfaction I got from creating things through different mechanisms. And that can be something on the side or it can, it can just be adapting the way you think about the value you provide. Because I think I found it and I see some of my teams go through a phase where they feel like, oh, I'm not doing the thing that I was doing to deliver value in my job now. And what, what am I about and um, how do I get the satisfaction I had um, before um, and what I do, so I think facing that problem, um, you know, kind of learning about the value that you provide as a leader, and, and potentially finding kind of avenues to get that satisfaction from from something else is really important to step into. I mean, that kind of changes as you as you get more senior and you get you understand your role more. But I think for for that initial. Hands-on technology to leadership role—it's a really important thing to get your head around. I think you also you need to keep some connection with with the work of the people you manage, but you just by nature get less time to do that, and some people find that change quite hard, and I did initially.
0: Yeah, that's you're kind of hitting on on a spot for me. I'm right now like not actively making a lot of things anymore, and I I I get to watch my uh, like my coworkers like creating all all this cool content and I'm like, man, that looks like fun. Like, <laughs> um, but uh, it, but I, i'm I'm finding it really exciting to focus on the results that are happening. Um, and that's that's super cool to watch. And also thinking about like the impact that that I get to have of like kind of created a a line of business that is now, providing employment for these people that i like um and that's so cool
1: it's amazing i agree with you like the satisfaction you get from leading groups of people seeing them develop and the impact you can have is is amazing um over time like it is deeply rewarding i mean there's nothing better i find in my job than um hiring great people giving them opportunities and seeing them develop like it's Deeply satisfying.
0: Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Before we wrap up, um, do Do you have anything that we didn't get to touch on today that you want to uh, throw some attention towards? Um, I know you guys are always hiring. Um, if people heard this and they want to reach out, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, we have com slash careers. I think we, um, we covered everything really well there. Um, that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, but we are we are growing really quickly. We have lots of fantastic jobs across engineering and data science and and places around the world. Um, and you know, like I, I'm biased, but it is a really it is a really great place to work. And we have some fascinating problems for technologists to work on.